Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good morning and happy Father's Day, uh, City Church. Yeah. Uh, as Marcus said, my name is John Ludovina, and I'm a pastor at Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. Just a couple quick things by way of introduction before we dive into our text and our sermon for this morning. Uh, the first one is, I love that it's Father's Day. I love dads. I love being a dad. This, we got a picture of my family right there. That's uh, my wife, Erica, and we've got five kids and I love it. It is uh, one of the greatest privileges and honors of my life to be a father to them. And like Marcus said earlier, in so many ways, uh, because being a dad is a way that we get to reflect God who relates to us. He chooses to relate to us as a perfect heavenly father, a loving father, a gracious father, a just father. And so uh, just to all the dads in the room doing your best to be an imperfect little mirror and picture of dad's uh, heavenly father's perfect fatherliness just wanted to say thank you for that. Keep it up. The second thing uh, that Marcus also just mentioned is uh, one of the other great honors and privileges of my life is that I've been a pastor now for about 16 years. And our church, uh, Midtown, we've had over the years, uh, we have had the opportunity to send out multiple church plants, uh, including City Church here in Knoxville. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. Church planting is beautiful. Uh, getting to hang out and connect, reconnect with so many people this weekend um, Getting to just be here and look at you guys, and I don't know if you ever think about yourself like this, but at some level, this church and you and all of y'all are fruit of, of a little group of people who uprooted their lives and moved here, and they gave up they gave up security, they gave up established relationships, they gave up jobs to move their lives here to see Jesus' kingdom go forward, to see a, a gospel-centered family here in Knoxville. And for me, as a, as a sender, I need you to know that's beautiful and it's painful. It's what we sometimes call gospel goodbyes. Uh, it, my life is factually worse without... A lot of these people who uprooted their lives and came here so that your church could exist. And I'm not mad about it most of the time. I'm, um, I'm grateful for the opportunity, but it's, uh, it's, just like, it's just a fact. Our church is worse off so that your church can exist. And so it's just a reminder for me, and I hope for you this morning, that the way Jesus' kingdom moves forward is on the backs of ordinary sacrifices by God's people who are compelled by the gospel to serve, to sacrifice, to give their lives away. And all of this is my roundabout way of saying thank you so much uh, for honoring and for loving the people that we have given to you, the Batemans and the Shongs and the Antles and the Freemans and the Monfanges and uh, Shady Beatty and William Bitterman. And if you know any of those people, I love them all and I probably love somebody off the list, um, but I love them, and through them, and because of them, I love all of you at some level. So that's just a little bit of introduction, and we will dive in where we are going this morning. It's going to be a little bit of a doozy. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 24. I thought, uh, while you're flipping there, just to recap from last week, I thought Kent did a great job uh, last week setting up these weeks as y'all are going to be working through Matthew 24 and 25 and kind of Jesus' teaching on things that are to come. 
Jesus is teaching on the end times, on eschatology, on prophecy, on stuff that's upcoming. And so last week, there was, there was really just a lot to unpack in what is Jesus even talking about. And I thought Kent did just a really phenomenal job unpacking that and kind of talking about how a lot of those things were fulfilled around 70 AD and kind of talked about, I think the title last week was The End of the World as They Knew It. And then today, and for the next portions, the next parables that we're going to be getting into in the upcoming weeks, Jesus kind of shifts now to where he's more clearly talking about his second coming, his return, or what we will be calling today's sermon, the end of the world as we know it. So that was the end of the world as they knew it, now the end of the world as we know it. We're going to be looking at Jesus's return, what is sometimes referred to as the day of judgment or just the day. And so if you were looking for just an uplifting, happy Father's Day life coaching sermon, this will not be it. This won't be it. And now that I've said all of those nice things about Kent that I've already said, I'd like to now officially file my first complaint. See, I, here's what happened. This is real life. You can ask him. But I told Kent that my family was coming up near Knoxville for a family vacation. And since we'd be so nearby, I would be happy to preach for him on this Sunday, give him a Sunday off. And he said, dude, I'm going to be out of town like on Friday, Saturday. I'm taking Wit to a baseball game in Atlanta. That would be great. And I said, dude, that's awesome. And I'm thinking like, it's Father's Day. I'm going to preach like a one-off sermon, pull something out of the bag that I've taught before. It'll be like uplifting and encouraging. Like, what's up, dads? Go be men. Jesus is awesome. It's going to be great. And then he was like, cool, man. We got you locked in. You're going to be preaching on the rapture. And I'm fairly certain that I cussed in my office. I don't know if I'm allowed to admit that. I don't know if this is an honest space where we can talk about some of our failings. But like, here's the thing. Like, of all of the things in the vast, majestic, incredible counsel of God's word, eschatology, what theologians refer to as the study of end times, is just categorically the thing that I care about the least. And it's not just because of preference, though that's a piece of it, but it's because like, understanding and interpreting prophecy is complicated. It's hard. The rules are tough. So much of it can't be understood correctly until it comes to pass and you can see it in retrospect. And in case you're like, no, it's easy. Well, here would be my biggest proof of that. How many people devoted their lives to studying all of the prophecies about the Messiah and totally missed Jesus when he came? It's hard. (laughs) It's hard to get it right. It's hard to always know what's being talked about. And then, on top of that, there's the fact that most of the people who I know who are the most interested in eschatology, a lot of the times I just don't really see a lot of fruit in their lives in terms of like life transformation and actual Christ-likeness. I see a, little, a lot of arguing about things that are not actually, don't actually have a lot of clarity. And then you add on top of that that some of the so-called experts who want to sell books and teach all the sermons about all the prophecies, like, man, these people I find to be some of the least trustworthy people I've ever interacted with, who oftentimes, in very weird ways, like, they're not about Jesus and puffing him, like, making much of him. They're about puffing themselves up about this super secret special knowledge that they have, and then they leverage that against people who want their super secret special knowledge, and they leverage it for their own financial gain. Which, which I would start to feel we're moving towards the category of false prophets. Bare minimum with some messed up motivation. And then sometimes they like weirdly politicize it to be like the point of all of this is that you should hate your enemies. And it's like, no, 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 no. No, not if we're following Jesus. 
who said I'm called to love and pray for my enemies, no matter what my view of the things to come are. And so it's, um, it's just a real joy to be teaching this text to you this morning. <laughs> and I left off the last part. Then there's just the fact that this passage isn't even about the rapture, Kent. It's not. We'll come back to that in just a minute, okay? So here's the deal. I'll make a deal with you right up front. I don't want to do any of those things that I find to be particularly annoying that lots of dudes do with these texts, okay? What I want to do is read back through our passage and try to pull out some threads of what Jesus' intention, what his teaching is about in a way that might actually impact our lives, our real lives, and move us in the direction of transformation and more Christ-likeness. Is that a deal? Can we do that? It'll be tough, it'll be heavy sometimes, but I'll do my best. I'm, I'm wrestling with it, I'm struggling with it to serve you well this morning. You do your best, I'll pray for us, and then we'll just go into our text, all right? Father God, thank you for the opportunity this morning to open your word, even the passages that aren't necessarily our favorite, the passages that don't leap off the page with immediate understanding and clarity, God, thank you for, for City Church and the faithfulness to preach straight through books of the Bible where, where some of these topics and passages are going to come up and, and you force our hands to deal with things that maybe we wouldn't have wanted to deal with otherwise. God, I pray this morning that our hearts, that our minds would be open to your word, that we would be open to your spirit moving in us, transforming us, shifting us one more step, one more stage of, of, of revealed sanctification of glory. For those, maybe there's someone in the room who doesn't know you, they don't know what they think about you, and this whole topic could be so weird to them. And in the midst of that, God, I just ask that you would, would whisper into their mind and their soul that, that you love them, that you're here for them. This is a safe place for them to ask questions and to wrestle with their doubts. And God, I pray that you would um, just help the right things stick and anything that, that's not helpful, that it would just erase. It would just go away. I pray that you'd be with me this morning as I teach your word. We love you. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 24. We'll dive in with verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah... If you like to underline, you might want to underline that. We're going to come back to that. It's really important. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be, two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. I don't want, I want to look at three aspects of the end, the end of the world as we know it, three aspects of the end that Jesus gives us insight on this passage. I want to look at the timing of the end, I want to look at the nature of the end, and I want to look at the importance of the end. 
We're going to move pretty quick through number one and two, and then we're going to camp in number three. We're going to sit there for a while. So if in number one and number two, if you're like, wait, I have some questions on that, slow down. I can't because I've got to get to number three, and that's where we're going to spend our time, okay? So let's start number one with the timing of the end. Timing of the end. As we've read that passage a couple times this morning, I don't know if you noticed how many times Jesus mentions timing in this passage. Or maybe you noticed a little bit of a pattern in what he says about its timing. I want to try to kind of help you see if you can pick out the pattern. Okay, verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. I don't know if anything about that verse is like kind of standing out to you right now in bold. Who knows? Verse 42. You do not know on what day your Lord will come. Maybe you're starting to pick up on something. I'm not sure. Verse 44. The Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Okay, so for us preacher folks, for us professional Christians, uh, that's what you might call a pattern or a theme for our our literary-minded folks. And it's not just here. The next parable in Matthew 24, verse 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. The next chapter, 25, 13. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Acts 1, verse 7. This is Jesus referring to his own return. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. This is over and over. In a topic that doesn't always have clarity, that's a lot of clarity. It's a lot of clarity. It's not for you to know. No one knows. It's going to be at a time when you don't expect. It's not for you to try to figure out. So for people to read these passages and conclude that Jesus' desire is for us to decipher exactly when he will return and then to see those people like give their lives to that endeavor of trying to unlock the secret Bible code and buying like their secret magic decoder rings, it's like, man, you just have to ignore a whole lot of Jesus to get there. You have to ignore a lot of exactly what he said. You do not need to buy the secret decoder ring. And it wouldn't be buy, it would be sow your seed of $29.99. That's how they talk about it. Don't do it. It's a scam. Anyway, but now catch this. Okay, catch this. Jesus also doesn't say, nobody knows, so don't worry about it. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, it doesn't matter. Just forget about it. Quite the opposite, he says, nobody knows, so you should have a posture of imminent readiness. I'll do my work. I'll show you back in verse 42. We emphasize this part, the second part of the verse. It says, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come, but what comes right before that? Therefore, keep watch like a watchman with a posture of urgency and readiness. Not ignore it, not don't worry about it. Okay, verse 44. We focused on the second half. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him, what comes right before that? So you must be ready. Not saying it doesn't matter. I'm going to ignore it. Who cares? No. 
So you must be ready. I'll give you one more in the next chapter, 25, 13. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. You see the pattern? You don't know the precise timing, so stay ready, keep watch. When it comes to timing, here is Jesus' point. Don't focus on the precise when, focus on a posture of imminent readiness. That's what Jesus is getting after. In other passages, when Jesus talks about his second coming, he often uses words like soon. And I love that word because it's very vague. And also, it indicates, like, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but generations of Christians have been like, okay, soon. Not for us. Okay, that was for the next generation. Maybe they'll, maybe soon will be for them. I don't know, but soon, imminent readiness. So it's the summer, and I'm at a friend's house a few weeks ago at a pool party with my kids, and it's almost time to go, and parents, you may relate to this, so what do I do? I say, hey, kids, get ready. We're leaving soon. We're leaving soon. And they all do the thing that every kid does at a pool party. Oh, Dad, I don't want to leave. I don't, I will, we're not leaving yet. I'll, get, I'll leave then. It's like, no, there's some stuff we got to do. You got to get ready. You got to dry off. You got to say goodbye. Like, we gotta, and I give them like the serious dad face, you know, like the, no, I'm serious face. We're really doing it. And so then they, they start to get ready with certain amounts of coaching and redirection. They start to get ready. And then this funny thing happens where they like flip-flop, and then all of a sudden they're impatient. Dad, when are we leaving? Dad, you said to get ready, we're leaving soon. When are we going? He's like, you wanted to stay. And actually what I just did is what's called a parenting Jedi mind trick. You now have a posture of imminent readiness, which was my goal the whole time. So I win. And I don't care about your feelings. All right? Happy Father's Day. That's where we're at. Now the question is, why? Why would Jesus over and over tell his disciples to have this posture of readiness? Why would he say, it's coming soon, be ready, keep watch? Well, the answer is because he's a good shepherd who knows that life on planet Earth can be both distracting and sedating. It can shift your focus, it can distract you, and it can lull you to sleep on what really matters in life. And so he's giving us, he's giving his disciples a warning. He's saying, don't get distracted. Don't get drowsy. Don't sleep on the end. Literally. See, when Jesus says things like keep watch, which is like this over and over repeated phrase he uses, he's kind of beckoning the image of a watchman. Like, like someone who's on guard, you know, picture like in a movie, like someone standing up on the wall and they're watching for the enemy to come. And the thing for a watchman is there are two great dangers, you, distraction and drowsiness. You can lose your focus or you can get sleepy. Either one allows the enemy to sneak attack when you're not ready for it. So, so I know I don't know all of you well, but I imagine that as I'm talking about a watchman, probably... The, the image of cinematic beauty that's coming to mind for you is, is Harry Potter, right? Chamber of Secrets. Big three-headed dog, Fluffy. You know what I'm talking about? Guarding the trap door until what happens? Magical harps lull him to sleep and they sneak right in. So in, in this analogy... Jesus doesn't want us getting lured to sleep by the magical harps of sin. 
Yeah, it's silly, but you're going to remember it. And that's why I get paid the big bucks. I'm literally getting paid zero dollars to do this right now. Don't worry about it. Okay, great. That's the timing of the end. Jesus is saying, have a posture of imminent readiness. Don't get lulled to sleep. Don't get distracted. Keep me and my kingdom central. As if the end is coming soon, whether or not it does in your lifetime. Get that? That's the timing. Got to go quick. Point number two, the nature of the end. The nature of the end. I mentioned this earlier quickly, and some of you may have had your feathers ruffled since then, but I'd like to reiterate, Jesus is not talking about a rapture in this passage, or ever, but not in this passage. He is not talking about his people getting whisked away in joyful delight up in the sky with him. He's talking about a day of judgment. I'll show my work from the text, okay? Now, but maybe even before I do, you're like, but, 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 but. Verse 40 says that two men are working a field and one's whisked away in joyful delight. And verse 41 says that two women are, are grinding at the mill. It's not a dance move, it's, it's work, okay? And one of them gets whisked away in joyful delight. That's not what he's doing. The, the, the problem with that, I mean, because some of you are like, but dude, I read the Left Behind books and Kirk Cameron is my hero, I know what it's not. The problem with all of that is the Bible. Specifically here, the key is verse 37, where Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. I told you you might want to underline that. That's his context for everything he says in 38, 39, 40, 41. That's the picture he's using. Jesus is using the Old Testament image of the story of Noah, the days of the flood when God brought judgment on the sin of the world as a metaphorical picture for what will come at his second coming. So so think about this. This is going to hurt some of your heads and your love for the Left Behind series. Was it Tim LaHaye? It doesn't matter. Okay, great. The who, which people were taken away by the flood in the days of Noah? It wasn't God's people. The the people being saved by grace were not the ones taken away by the flood. That was the wicked. The ones who ignored God's warnings. The one who carried on in life, marrying and giving away in marriage as if nothing was going to happen. That's exactly what verse 38 and 39 say. They describe people ignoring God's gracious warning, carrying on without a worry in the world. They are the ones for whom the flood came and took them all away. It's not those being saved by grace. It's not a joyful rapture. It's a day of judgment. Now, when I am talking about all of this, some of you may just be squirming in your seats like, dude, judgment? Like, we're talking about God's wrath. And it's like, I know, Kent made me teach on this, okay, right? Like, I didn't want to. Um, Maybe you're just thinking, like, shouldn't we just focus on God's love? Like, God's love is what I'm all about. And, like, love is all you need. And I'm pretty sure Jesus said that, like, on his Yellow Submarine album, I think. Like, love is awesome. I just want to talk about love. The truth is, though, when, when Jesus brings up the day of, of Noah, he's referencing more than just the flood. See, we, most of us probably learned the story of Noah in kindergarten, and we have this picture of, you know, animals on the boat and everyone dying in the water, and it's sad, and I don't know why we teach it to children the way we do, but we do. It's just like the animals. We like that part for the kids, so we just go with it. But 
For this audience, for Jesus' disciples, who most of them had memorized most of the Old Testament, they would have known some details about the story that you may not be as clear on. See, Genesis 6, 8, right before the flood, it says that Noah found favor in God's sight. You can go look this up. That word favor in the Hebrew is the same word for grace. It's the first time it's ever mentioned in the entire book. Noah was not awesome and earned God's love. Noah found grace. It's a picture of God's grace. Also, while the flood is a definitive picture of God's judgment of sin and evil and wickedness, it's also a picture of his gracious patience and provision. He gives Noah a warning. He didn't have to do that. He gives Noah a boat or blueprints to make one. He didn't have to do that. He made a way for Noah and his family to be saved. Right after he just said, he looked at the wickedness of everyone on the whole planet. None of them deserve this. It's a picture of grace. Also, 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So it's very likely, we don't know for sure, but it's likely that while this appearingly crazy man is building a huge unnecessary wooden structure that he calls a boat in the middle of a desert, which he's working on with his kids for like 75 years. So the neighbors were asking some questions, you know, they were curious. And it's very likely that anyone who comes by with a question, no, what do you do? You're still doing the boat thing, huh? Cool. Your wife hates you. Like this is the worst hobby ever. I guess you're not having a midlife crisis, but you are. Like, whenever they would come by with questions, it's very likely that Noah's going, hey, God's judgment is coming for our sinfulness. But he's made a way. You can get on the boat with us. And they all ignored it. And they went on about their lives, just doing the normal thing, ignoring the warning, ignoring the offer of grace. One more thing before we leave this section. I would just like to point out, especially to those of us who are younger in the room, I'm thinking like sub-40 because that includes me still, just barely. It's a little bit hypocritical. It's more than a little bit hypocritical for us to think that we are allowed to get mad at evil, but God is not. Like, I get angry when someone cuts me off in traffic, but God's not allowed to get angry at centuries of brutal war and oppression of the poor and unbelievable sexual crimes, including what we have deemed rape culture, he's just supposed to be chill about that? It's hypocritical. We'll come back to that in a bit. Listen, it takes a cynical view of human history to think God is just so angry and he's just punishing people all the time. And the more accurate and the more biblical view is God's being unbelievably patient with human beings who are destroying themselves and each other and the planet. And he's being patient and gracious all the time, inviting them back to him, inviting them back to his design for life and righteousness. So so the, the nature, Jesus' teaching here on the nature of the end is both a sobering warning about God's judgment and it's a beautiful reminder of his patient love and grace. That's the nature of the end in this passage Let's keep going to point three. This is where we'll spend the lion's share of our time. Number three, the importance of the end. Why does any of this matter? Because it's, dude, it's just Father's Day and I want to go get the good cuts of meat and the importance of the end. Just for you, dog. Love that man. 
Uh, I want to give you uh, a few reasons why all of this matters, and what we'll do is we'll build in complexity as we go. So we'll start really simple, and then they'll get a little bit harder and make your brain work a little more as we go. Here's the first one, and most simply. If you're a Christian in the room, if you claim Jesus as king, right? You've submitted your whole life to him and his kingdom, and he cares enough about the end to teach about it, then might we at least consider that we should care about it too? That's my first point. Subpoint and the importance. If Jesus cares about it, maybe. I'm not, I'm not mean. I'm not forcing this on you. But maybe, maybe we should care about it too. Might we consider that part of why we naturally don't tend to care about all of this stuff is because Jesus is right and this world and all of its trinkets really are distracting and intoxicating. Might we consider that Jesus, our good shepherd, is right and he knows the warnings we need so that we don't fall asleep, so that we don't get drowsy, so that we don't get obsessed with the pleasures of this world in such a way that we lose sight of him and his glory and his kingdom. Might it be that for some of us, we don't care that much about the end because we don't even know if life eternal with Jesus would really be better than just an easy, good, comfortable life here and now? Could it be that sometimes we want Jesus to be our, our life coach and our therapist whose job is just to make my life better here, when in reality, he's our king who's calling us into an entire other kingdom. He's calling us to see everything about our lives, our time, our money, our relationships, through a totally different lens. Jesus cares about it. Maybe we should care about it too. It all reminds me of this quote that I really love by a guy named J.I. Packer. He says, still he seeks the fellowship of his people and he sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. Maybe for some of you in the room, that's the takeaway for this morning. It's just that. Jesus, who is your good, loving, gracious, gracious shepherd, is just trying to sound an alarm warning in your life this morning, going, hey, you're drifting. We're losing focus. We, we've lost our first love. You, your love for me, your passion for me, it's, it's drifting towards things that are shiny on this earth, and they're not necessarily bad, but they can be eternally crippling. Maybe if Jesus cares about it, we should too. That's all the time we have for that one. Importance of the end, part two. The end is of unbelievable importance to those who have known vast injustice. God's judgment, the end, is of unbelievable importance to those who have known vast injustice. And I'm pretty much just going to let Miroslav Volf make my point for me here. He sums this up better than anyone else I've ever heard. If you're not familiar with him, uh, Wolf is a pastor and a theologian who was born in Croatia, and he watched the Bosnian War just destroy his homeland. I want you to listen to what he has to say about God's judgment and his wrath, okay? He says, I used to think wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? 
Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the, reason, the region from which I come. 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By affirming their basic goodness? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. If God were not angry at injustice and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. You hear what he's saying? If God isn't angry at wickedness, if he doesn't judge evil, if there is no day of judgment coming when all violence and all evil ends for good, then he's not loving at all and we can't trust him. Like, like I don't know what injustice you've experienced in your life. Maybe not much, maybe a lot. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where the legal system fails you and the systems of justice that are supposed to make sure everything gets worked out and evil gets punished correctly on earth. I mean, that thing fails sometimes. God's judgment never does. And throughout human history, those who have experienced the most injustice, the most pain, the most oppression, the least hope for legal vindication here on earth have often found great hope in the fact that every criminal, every evildoer, every perpetrator will one day face God's perfect righteous judgment, and he sees it all. Nothing skips his view even if everything on this planet looked like they got away with it. It means if you've undergone injustice, it means you can forgive. It means you don't have to seek vengeance. It means you can trust God who sees all and knows all and is perfectly just. That's sub-point number two. It's the importance of the end for those who have faced injustice. Let's consider a third reason the end is important for all of us. Jesus wants the end to shape how you live your entire life, whoever you are. Jesus wants the end to shape how you live your entire life. I want you right up front. This point is going to get emotional. I apologize in advance. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. We're going to give it the best we can. Back in my home church in Columbia, we have a series of leadership values, and one of my favorites is lead with the end in mind. It's the idea that before you get moving, whether you're planning an event or a ministry or anything you might be doing in life, that you really should figure out where you're going and what you're trying to accomplish before you start working. And some of you are planners, and you're like, duh, and some of you are doers, and you're like, why? Just start doing stuff. Fun to do stuff. 
But the reality is that a thousand decisions are made along the way by knowing where you're trying to get to, by knowing the destination. And that's true on very small levels for decision-making, and it's also true on the largest levels when you think about your entire life. So my dad was a man named Frank Ludovina. I was a sophomore in college when I found out that he was having an affair on my mom. And over the next year or so, he decided to divorce my mom, and he decided to remarry the woman he was having an affair with. And it was, uh, it was crushing for me. It was devastating. Uh, my dad had been my hero. He was the bedrock of our family. And at the time, I, w- I was in college, and there was a local pastor named Dr. John Adams. I was not a member of his church. I had met him a couple times through a, a parachurch college ministry, and I don't know why, but he agreed to meet with me and to kind of counsel me through this devastating season. He was so kind and so loving, and he had just recently adopted a young boy, and so he, he was relating everything I was going through to him being a dad. And, and there was this moment, I'll never forget, he, he looked at me with like tears in his eyes. And he said, oh, John, your dad's not thinking about who's going to be at his funeral." And he just let that sit. That sentence just sat in the silence. Flash forward 17 years from that moment in his office. It's three years ago, and I'm, uh, I'm sitting at my dad's funeral. And it was one of the most painfully awkward funerals I've ever been to. Not just for me personally, But every family member there had this mixture of love and mourning for this man who we really did love in so many ways. And also this terrible, painful, unhealed wounds from all the just wreck and carnage that he caused at the end of his life. It was not the kind of celebration you'd hope to end your life with. And then in contrast... A number of years ago, I had the privilege of officiating a funeral service for a member of my church um, named Steve Von Fange. See, Steve started coming to our church with his wife, Sharon, because his college-age son, Jesse, was coming to our church in college, which made a lot more sense for Jesse, because our church, I mean, like, we were like average age 22 at the time. We were very young. And Steve and Sharon decided to uproot their lives and come be a part of our church family. We're like five years old, praying for anyone with wisdom or money or gray hairs at all to like, please come help. And they did, not because of what we had to offer them. It was amazing. And see, Steve was, was a, man, he was a unique guy. He was a, a voracious businessman. Like everyone who knew him would joke about how much he loved spreadsheets. But at the same time, because of Jesus, Steve had spent his life learning how to love people. He did not, by nature, care about people. But because of Jesus, he loved people. And and as well, uh, Steve decided to retire at the age of 55 because his father and his father's father had both died at 57. And nobody knew why exactly, but Steve decided, well, there's a chance I might die young as well, so I'm going to retire early. And in his retirement, Steve came to us and said, hey, I'd like to come on staff with Midtown for free just to pastor your pastors. Would that be okay? Yes, please. 
It's exactly how much we can afford to pay you. <laughs> That's what he wanted to do with his final years on this earth. Steve um, lived his whole life in light of the end. He literally reverse engineered everything about the chapters of his life in light of the end of his life here on earth. And, I, and I'm speaking on two different levels here, right? On one level, I'm just talking about his last chapter of life on earth. And at another level, I'm talking about the end that we've been talking about all morning. He took Jesus' warning seriously. And he re-engineered everything from this day until that day in light of, like, I don't know if you think about this. You know, some of you are closer than others by natural age and all of that. But all of us are going to write a last chapter of our life someday. I don't know if you think about that or not. And what we don't realize is what we're doing now affects how we will write that chapter then. And the difference between my dad, Frank, and Jesse's dad, Steve, is that my dad got lulled to sleep by the pleasures of this world. He, he lost sight of the end he did not consider well the last chapter of life he would write. But Steve heeded Jesus' warning, and he allowed the end to keep him locked in, to stay on watch, to be ready. It changed how he viewed himself and how he changed other people. It changed how he viewed and lived every day of his life. Steve was one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen of Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so I've got to ask, are, are you living your life in light of the end? Are, are you thinking about the kind of last chapter that you're going to write someday? Have you considered who will be at your funeral and what that event will be like for them? Have you started noticing the wrinkles on your face? The, the pains in your joints whispering you're not eternal. You are breaking death. The end is coming. Jesus is right. He's a good shepherd. And, and if I just ended there, I, I don't think that'd be wrong. Like if you just left this morning with kind of this foreboding weight of, wow, that's heavy and I need to think about it. I don't think that'd be unfaithful to the text and what Jesus teaches here. I do think it'd be a tiny bit incomplete, though. And so I want to give us one last reason that the end is really important. The end is massively important because it reminds us of how much we need the gospel. Just like Noah and his family needed God to provide a gracious way through his day of judgment in the flood, we all need God to provide a gracious way through the coming day of judgment. No one passes the test of God's judgment and righteousness on their own. We need favor. We need grace. You do not want to show up to that day saying, I was a pretty good guy. Because God sees everything including the stuff that you can't stop thinking about sometimes in your darkest moments when your head hits the pillow. The secrets that you can't imagine if anybody ever found out, how would they love you? He knows it all. And just like Noah, we need God's favor. We need his grace. For Noah, God provided a boat. For us, he has provided his very son. 
He's given us his own flesh and blood to live and die in our place. See, it's the end of Jesus' life that gives me great hope for the end of mine. It's not my blood genetics. If DNA is destiny, I'm in trouble. If God has graciously given me his son to redeem me and bring me to a different kingdom of light, then I've got hope. Steve did as well as any human I've ever seen, living his entire life in light of the end and writing the last chapters of his life beautifully. But I need you to know, he didn't do it out of some terrible fear of God's judgment or out of some guilty sense that if he didn't do good enough and be good enough and follow the rules good enough that God was going to hate him. That was not this man. He was over, his mind was blown by the reality of God's grace to him and his son Jesus. And and God's love to him and Jesus overflowed in his love for every person he met. God's generosity to him and Jesus overflowed. So we're at the funeral. It was the, uh, I was preaching Steve's funeral and it was was like the largest gathering I think our church has ever had. It was like 800 people standing room only. It It was unbelievable. It was phenomenal. And at one point his brother was speaking. And he asked everybody in the room, he said, uh, Raise your hand if you were ever in a, in a position of need and Steve gave to you in a way that you couldn't explain how he knew what you needed and you didn't know how you were going to meet that need without, and I'm telling you, like out of 800 plus people, 750 hands went up in the room and we were all looking at each other, you too? I thought he just did it for me. And Steve's life overflowed with God's love and his grace, not because he was ignoring the end, but because he had considered with great weight the end, and he had reverse-engineered his entire life from now until then. I don't know where you're coming from this morning. I I don't know if maybe you're you're a little older and you're kind of thinking, stop talking, because I just feel like I've wasted it, and I feel like I've thrown away so many chapters of my life. Listen, I'm not here today with judgment for you. I'm here with a gracious warning from a gracious father who is not condemning you and telling you, look back, you've wasted it, but saying you don't have to from here forward. His grace is good enough to cover everything you've ever screwed up and to give you new life and new hope and a new spirit and a new heart and a new mind to rewrite whatever days you have left. Maybe some of us in the room were a little younger, Body still work correctly. No back pain in the morning. It's cool. It's cool. You're cool. And I, I would just, as, as an older brother in the faith, I would just encourage you, man, don't get so caught up in the pleasures of youth that you're just racking up tallies and regret that someday those debts come due. It's, it's not too early. It's not too late. And it's not too early to consider how you might rewrite your entire life in light of the end. Your last chapter here on this earth and also God's day of judgment that is coming. This is not an if for Jesus. This is a coming reality. And so today on this Father's Day, I would just love to encourage all of us to consider the grace of our perfect Heavenly Father and how we might rewrite all of the days of our life here on earth until that day comes.